You're listening to We Can Do This, a podcast by the National Consumers League. We talk through the issues of today with the figures who have paved the way for social and economic reforms and those carrying on the fight for an equitable tomorrow. Leading today's conversation is Reed Mackey, Director of Child Labor Issues and Coordinator of the Child Labor Coalition at the National Consumers League. Welcome, everyone. I'm Reed Mackey, the Director of Child Labor Advocacy at the National Consumers League and the Coordinator of the Child Labor Coalition. Today, we are talking to a remarkable advocate, Freddie Reese, whose organization, Unchained at Last, leads a national campaign to ban child marriage in the U.S. Freddie has a very interesting story that led her into this work, which we will hear later. She's also featured in Hillary and Chelsea Clinton's Book of Gutsy Women, Favorite Stories of Courage and Resilience. Frady, many Americans are unaware that child marriage is a problem in the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about the prevalence of child marriage and why child marriage is problematic with negative impacts on girls here in the U.S.? Uh, sure, Reed. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's shocking, and I don't know why so many Americans remain unaware that child marriage is a significant problem in the United States. We know based on the research that the uh, nonprofit that I founded, Unchained at Last, has done groundbreaking research, we know that 248,000 children were married in the U.S. just between 2000 and 2010. And almost all of them were girls married to adult men. And first, I mean, child marriage doesn't just sound bad. It is terrible for many reasons. But the two main reasons that we at Unchained at Last are determined to end child marriage in the United States are one, it can so easily be a forced marriage, which we can talk more about, but also because it has devastating lifelong repercussions, particularly for girls in the United States when they marry before the age of 18. It destroys their health, their education, their economic opportunities, and really significantly increases their risk of experiencing violence within the marriage. Well, we're really proud to be partners with you in the campaign, both the National Consumers League and the Child Labor Coalition. We're delighted to be working with you on this. How, how would you say the campaign is going? Have you had some successes as you've been trying to get states to, to tighten mar child marriage laws? We have indeed. We have seen two historic victories so far in Delaware and New Jersey in 2018. We helped them both become the first U.S. states to end child marriage. We also have seen historic victories in two U.S. territories. That's American Samoa and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And just today, we actually had... Uh, a step toward a victory. The Pennsylvania Senate unanimously approved a bill to end child marriage. The House is expected to do the same within a couple of hours, and the bill is expected to go to the governor's desk today. The governor, Tom Wolf, has already promised to sign it. So yes, we are starting to see some progress. Only 47 states to go, right? That's a daunting number, and um, but but you folks have been very, very vigorously pursuing this campaign, and it's, it's been fun to watch. Yes, there's, there's nothing easy about this. It's definitely much more difficult than we expected this to be when we first set out ending child marriage. You think is a no-brainer, why do we even still have child marriage? So uh, it's been extraordinary to see how difficult it's been, but we are so grateful to the National Consumers League and the Child Labor Coalition and to the many others that have stepped up and said, we want to join you in this fight. Let's do this. What do, what do you think some of the obstacles are in trying to get these bills passed to limit child marriage? Is it the conservative view that parental rights trump everything? Has that been a real problem here? 
Well, I mean, we've certainly heard that, but that's not the main pushback that we've gotten. I think the the overall reason that this is so difficult, so much more difficult than it should be to end child marriage in year 2020 in the United States, I think has a lot to do with lack of understanding and lack of awareness of the issue. I think most Americans still don't know that child marriage is legal here in most of the United States. And I think that when people and legislators in particular hear about this, after the initial shock, they start jumping to some inaccurate conclusions about child marriage, assuming, well, it's children who are in love and it's somehow sweet and romantic and not fully understanding uh, just how trapped children can become within a marriage and just how devastating the outcomes are for those in the United States who marry before 18. Uh, do you find that pregnancy is driving a lot of child marriages? We don't have hard data on how many child marriages are, are related to a pregnancy. Because the data that we retrieved from across the U.S. that showed that an estimated 248,000 children were married here in the first decade of the century, it did not include identifying information about the children. It did not include any information about why they married, what their outcomes were, et cetera. Anecdotally, though, we know, because at, the, at Unchained at Last, we work not only on advocacy, but we also provide direct services to individuals, mostly women and girls, who are in or facing a forced marriage. And so many girls reach out to us to say, please help me, I'm about to be forced into a marriage, or I've already been forced into a marriage. And many women reach out to us to say this has already happened to them. And so anecdotally, we know that pregnancy for a lot of them was the reason that their parents forced them or are forcing them to marry. So in some cases, uh, there's, uh, you know, in many states, the, the, there's a, a problem with uh, uh, parents uh, parents having the right to basically dictate whether the children can get married. And, and, and do parents always make the best choice for their children? Well, that's the scary thing. In a lot of states, children can marry uh, at, at specific ages, and the laws vary by state. But in many states, children often at age 16 or 17 can marry if a parent just signs a form. One or in some states, both parents, but in, in, in many cases, just a parent has to sign a form. And that's enough. That's all it takes for a child to be married off. But unfortunately, what we have seen, again, anecdotally, there's no data on this in the U.S., but what we have seen again and again at Unchained at Last is that when someone in the United States is forced to marry, the perpetrators are almost always the parents. And so this notion of a, of a parental signature somehow providing some sort of protection or being enough of a reason to marry off a child, it's preposterous. All it's doing is empowering parents who want to be able to marry off their children to do so. And we know of situations where girls showed up at a clerk's office openly sobbing or asking for help, begging for help while their parents sign a form and force them into a marriage, and there was nothing the clerk could do. So uh, unfortunately, no, in many cases, parents are the reason that these children are being subjected to what the U.S. State Department calls a human rights abuse. And in some cases, it's parents who think they're doing the right thing for a child, and, and parents have all kinds of reasons. And that and we could talk about some of the ones that we have seen, but um, in, in some cases, parents know that what they're doing is wrong. In some cases, they think that they're doing the right thing, but certainly allowing children to be entered into a serious contract that they can't get out of based solely on a signature on a form, that's dangerous. You, you come to this issue through personal experience. You were in an early marriage that um, was somewhat coercive, uh, and it led you, you know, into this remarkable campaign that, that you are conducting now. Can you tell us about your marriage and your awakening that that you were in an uns unsustainable situation? Sure. And I refer to my own marriage as somewhat coercive. It was a forced marriage. I was raised in a very insular religious community where I did not have the choice about 
whether, when, or whom to marry. It was decided for me. My family arranged my marriage to a stranger. I did get to meet him, but, uh, and I was told I can say yes to the marriage or not say yes to the marriage and face the terrible repercussions that would come from, from not just going along with it. And for me, the, the option of saying no was never a real option. And uh, from the beginning, it was a, an abusive marriage. And because of religious laws and social customs in that community, even though I was in Brooklyn, in New York City, I had uh, basically no, uh, no escape route. I was completely trapped. And it took me 15 years to finally escape from this marriage because in that community, I had limited legal rights, limited or no financial rights, and no reproductive rights. And uh, when I finally managed to escape, with my two daughters, my family retaliated against me by shunning me. They declared me dead. And uh, more than a decade later, they still consider me dead. So I rebuilt my life and then went on to found one chain at last to help others in the United States who find themselves in a similar situation. And, and this was an Orthodox Jewish community? That's right. It was the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn, in New York City. And was... Um... I know 15 years is a long time for this all to play out, but were there were there early moments in your marriage when you realized that that you were really in a situation that 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 wasn't going to be good for you? One week after our wedding, he woke up late in the morning and became so enraged that he was screaming and cursing and punched his fist through the wall hard enough that he left a big hole in the wall. So it was and it was just down. So it was. Wow. From the beginning, it was an abusive marriage. And from the beginning, from seven days into the wedding, it was very clear to me that this was not a marriage that I wanted. Wow, that's that's very chilling. Um, and then it, and then there were uh, many, many years of of um, of um, trying to co trying to coexist and make it work. And and then was there another turning point? Was there a turning point near the end where you just said, I, I cannot do this anymore? Well, there was. There was another turning point when I was 27, when I, after a particularly violent incident at home, after I had secretly started seeing a therapist from outside the community who explained to me what domestic violence was and explained to me what my legal rights were, I walked into a police department. At the time I was living, we had moved from Brooklyn into uh, Lakewood, New Jersey, in Ocean County where there is a large Orthodox Jewish community. And so I believe I was the first woman in the Orthodox Jewish community in Lakewood to go into the police department and ask for a temporary restraining order against my then husband. And it was the my family and community's reaction to this restraining order that ultimately led me to leave because everyone I knew turned on me. And in, rather than being concerned for my safety or ask why I felt I needed a restraining order, why I had done that, it was... How dare you uh, going in, in that community, seeking help from the secular authorities is a sin that is punishable by death. And I had committed that sin. And the rabbis in Lakewood sent an Orthodox Jewish male attorney to my house who drove with me to family court and had me stand in front of the judge and tell the judge that I wanted to drop the restraint order. And it was at that moment that I realized I, I need to get out and I need to do this on my own. Nobody's going to help me. Amazing. So you mentioned that Unchained does direct service with um, with many young women who are trying to get out of either stop or get out of a, a child marriage that um, isn't working for them. Um, so has it been has your experience guided you through some of the uh, sense that you know they're facing a lot of obstacles that are preventing them from acting? 
Um, sure. And, and so first of all, to clarify, our main mission is ending the bigger picture of forced marriage. So most of our clients are adults and we're married as adults or are facing a forced marriage as adults. So we do have children reaching out to us and we work with survivors who are married as children. But for the most part, we are working with adults. And um, yeah, based on my own experience, I have, uh, and also not only on my own experience, because that was uh, that was just one experience but also from years of doing this Sunshine at last i found it in 2011 and we were we've worked with more than 600 survivors in eight years since and so we have gotten to a place where we have a fairly good understanding of the types of services that somebody in this situation needs and we provide really comprehensive wraparound often life-saving services everything from helping people escape to building their life uh, and becoming emotionally and financially independent and everything in between. And we never charge for any of our services. They are always for And how do women find you? Do, do, is it mostly through your website or or, um, or a, a phone, a toll-free phone line? The three main ways that people find us are, first of all, through, uh, through word of mouth. We get a lot of calls. We do have a, a form on, on the website. We have a uh, an opportunity for people to submit, just click on a link and, and say that they need help or they can email us or call us. And a lot of them say, hey, will you, are, will you help my friend, my sister, in one case, even my daughter, can you help me too? Um, but also we get referrals from a lot of domestic violence agencies, law enforcement, the State Department, uh, as, as more of those organizations find out about us. These are organizations that survivor and agencies that survivors are more likely to find on their own. We get a lot of referrals there. And then people just find us online. They do a Google search. And in many cases, they're not allowed to be on the internet. In my former community, the rabbis banned the internet. And so in some cases, they're not even allowed to be on the internet, but that's a hard rule to enforce. And we find that uh, the survivors who reach out to us in many cases are extremely resilient and uh, and clever in the ways that they find to be able to support themselves. Un Unchained is engaged in a um, you know, national campaign to, to Changed marriage laws, and has seen it's included some clever, innovative uh, of public events. Um, could you tell us a little bit about Unchained's Chained Ins? Yeah, so we're very proud of the Chain Ins. It's a form of protest that we invented, where we gather a group of us, as many people as we can get, and we all wear bridal gowns, which we provide, by the way. People donate their bridal gowns to us so that we can do this. And we wear veils, so we do the whole bridal getup, and then we chain our wrists and tape our mouths. And we do this at a state house, or at a, we've done this in New York at uh, at Union Square. Although actually, when we did it in Union Square, that was early on. So at that time, we were still just wearing black. But we've done that, at, you know, Penn Station in New Jersey and Newark Penn Station, um, and it just really sends a really powerful message to legislators and to the public. This is what life looks like for a girl or a woman who is forced to marry. She is silenced and she is trapped. I read online that uh, you had one in Minnesota recently that that was, uh, it had some really challenging um, weather circumstances around it. Yeah. Um, right, so every yes, everything about winter in Minnesota is challenging. Uh, I don't remember the exact temperature that day, but it was, it was minus 30 something, it was, a level of cold that I had never seen before. And wearing a bridal gown in that weather was definitely a challenge, but you know, we don't let things stop us. So, and it was, you know, to be fair and honest, it was an indoor 
chain in. So, um, so you know, we did not have to stand outdoors at least in our bridal gowns. But yeah, we have done these chain ins in multiple states, and we were planning to do more of them. Coronavirus right now has shut us down a little bit. Uh, as soon as we can leave the house safely again, we are going to continue chaining in, and we. We'll do this across the United States. It's one of the many things that we plan to continue doing until you and I can have this conversation and I can report all 50 states, all five territories and D.C. have ended child marriage. So you're in this campaign for the long run. You don't care how long it takes. You're 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 committed to seeing this through. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's one of those issues. There are really upsetting issues out there that we can talk about that don't have an easy solution like world hunger. you know, poverty. There's so many things that we can talk about that we would all want to change, but we just don't know how or it's going to take a long time. This is, there's a simple, obvious solution and it can be achieved not only in our lifetime, it can be achieved this month. All we have to do is pass legislation in all 50 states the way that Delaware and New Jersey have done that say no more marriage before 18. Problem solved, moved on to world to uh, hunger and poverty. I, uh, I see some parallels to the campaign to, um, um, to make uh, legal, to legalize gay marriage, which you know for, for many years seemed like it was an impossible thing to achieve. And then uh, the, once, once it got going and states started passing the laws, it, it became uh, it was you know it actually became very quick. Yeah, you know, that that gave us, we certainly look at that movement as uh, a source of hope, because as you said, it started out, this is, it just seemed so doomed, it was never going to happen. It's a little bit different for us, because we started out the opposite thinking, this is going to be so easy, legislators are going to give us a hug and a high five, and they're immediately and unanimously going to pass this legislation. So we we were surprised at the pushback we got. Uh, You know, we knew that there were a lot of homophobic people in the United States, I didn't realize there were this many pedophiles. We, uh, you know, we had similar uh, feelings about our campaign to improve U.S. child labor laws, which which we thought were a no brainer. You know, we thought that the public would understand that 12 year olds shouldn't be doing backbreaking labor on farms for you know, almost no wages. But it's been a, it's been a real challenge. We've been the Child Labor Coalition has been working on, on this issue for about two decades with um, not many major successes. It's been it's been very hard to convince, uh, especially with the strong farm lobby. It's been very hard to convince uh, the country that that um, these children need to be protected. So it's so I feel shocking. your pain. Yeah, yeah, and it's just it's shocking. I mean, it's so obvious. Why would you vote no to that? Why? Would, I mean, yes. So yes, you feel my pain. You get it. <laughs> Can we dig a little deeper on the impacts on on uh, on women who? Uh, I know you said that a lot of the marriages you're looking at are forced marriages, and they may not be children. But in the case where children are getting married, um, can you talk about some of the, the health research or um, you know, mental health, physical health, uh, and issues that are impacting children by getting married? Sure. And, and when you hear this, you'll understand why the U.S. State Department has called marriage before 18 a human rights abuse, because it really does destroy almost every aspect of a girl or woman's life. So we'll we'll start with education. We know that, and this is studies done in the United States, not in a developing country, right here in the U.S. So whether it's Maryland, California, Minnesota, a girl or a woman marries at or before 18, she's 50% more likely to drop out of high school and four times less likely ever to finish college. If she marries as a teen, she's three times more likely to have five or more children. 
We also know that women in the U.S. who married young are 31% more likely to end up living in poverty in adulthood. And then because of the forfeited education and the poverty and the stress that come from child marriage, we also know that here in the U.S., a woman who married out or before 18 faces a 23% increased risk of heart attack, cancer, diabetes, and stroke, and an increased risk of almost every psychiatric disorder. So this is very much a public health issue. And then globally, there was a study that showed that around the world, women who marry before 18 are three times more likely to be beaten by their spouse than women who married at 21 or older. Wow, those are very daunting statistics. And it, it really you know, belies the work you're doing. And it's just very clear that this is a phenomenon that, that needs to be curtailed. Um, I, I've participated in some of the, the state legislative work that you folks have done. And one of the things that, that legislators are, are struggling with is uh, many, many believe that 17-year-olds could make these decisions or should be allowed to make these decisions. And you folks have, I think, rightly drawn a line in the sand and said, no, this, this really needs to be an 18-year-old. Um, it needs to be an adult making these decisions. Can you talk a little bit about, about that distinction? Yeah. And so for legislators who say, well, 17, 16, they're nearly 18. What's the big difference? What's, you know, they can be just as mature at that age. What we tell legislators is this is not a question of maturity. It is a question of legal capacity. And when you look at legal capacity, there is a massive difference between a 17 year old, even one whose 18th birthday is tomorrow and an 18 year old, even one who just had a birthday today. The difference is one is a legal adult and one is not. And before you become a legal adult here in the United States, you simply do not have the basic rights that you need to uh, to navigate a contract as serious as marriage. You can very easily either be forced into the marriage and or forced to stay in a marriage once you're in it. Now, um, so I'll go through to explain what I mean and keeping in mind that, of course, the laws vary by state. So I'm going to talk in generalities here. Generally speaking, before you turn 18 in the United States, you're not allowed to leave home. If you leave home, you're considered a runaway. In some states, you could actually be charged with a status offense for leaving home. And in many states, the police can drag you back home against your will. And that's whether they're dragging you back to parents who are planning a wedding for you that you don't want, or it's to drag you back to an abusive spouse. I should add here also, if we at Unchained at Last or other advocates help a child to leave home, in many states, we can be charged criminally for our part in it. If these children manage to get to a domestic violence shelter without getting dragged back home or arrested without an advocate arrested, most domestic violence shelters across the United States will not accept an unaccompanied minor. There are all kinds of liability issues that come with uh, allowing a child in without, uh, without uh, a, a guardian or a parent. And in many cases, there are funding guidelines that prevent them from doing that as well. Retaining an attorney, so you think, okay, well, there are all these complications, get an attorney to help you through all of this. Contracts with children across the United States typically are voidable. In some states, they're actually void. And that means that a retainer agreement that a child enters into with an attorney is a worthless piece of paper. Attorneys do not want to take on children as clients. We have girls reach out to us and say, I called every attorney in my state. Nobody will take me on as a client. It gets worse. Children typically are not allowed to bring a legal action in their own name before they turn 18. So not only does that mean in a lot of states, a child who is in an abusive marriage cannot seek a protective order against their spouse, but in many states, a child who is in an un unhappy or abusive marriage is not even allowed to file for divorce. And, and keep in mind, we know from the statistics that most of the children who marry in the U.S. are girls married to adult men. So the girls face all these 
overwhelming obstacles and handicaps and their adult husbands face none of these problems. So in addition to everything else, we're creating a significant imbalance of power. And we'd like to say it Unchained at last that the child marriage puts the lock in wedlock. It creates a trap for a child. And what often happens, Reed, is when these girls reach out to us to ask for help, and we have to be honest with them and explain how limited their options are, in many cases, what they end up doing is turning to suicide attempts because to them, death seems like the only way out. That's the way we have written our laws, that for a child who doesn't want to be married, in many, what, what, what we're telling them is the only way out for you is death. I know that many young women who are trying to move out of an abusive relationship uh, you know, if you're under 18, you can't sign a, a rental contract usually. It's very hard to rent a place, right? Yeah, exactly. So the, the disabilities of non-age that I just described, that's just scratching the surface. It goes on and on. Yes, exactly. Something like it's really, if you can't enter into a contract, then you can't rent an apartment. In many states, children before the age of 18 can get only a provisional driver's license and they have a curfew. Well, how are you supposed to escape? Many times the way that we plan our clients' escape is when everybody else is sleeping at midnight. You leave the house and we'll pick you up around the corner. How are you supposed to do that when you can't even drive after a certain time? I mean, what we're creating, what we have created here is this, this legal nightmare for children where they can be entered into a marriage, often on the say-so of a parent or a judge without any or only, you know, almost no say-so from the child. And then this child is just trapped in the marriage until adulthood. That's very, very frightening. You mentioned the virus earlier. We do live in a very scary time with many women quarantined with spouses that, that may be abusive or have abusive tendencies. Are you, are you fearful that the rates of domestic violence and child abuse may rise during COVID? Is this a, is this a particularly frightening time for the Unchained team? Well, it's not just fearing it. I mean, we know that that is, that is the case. And um, the statistics are already showing that's exactly what, what's happening. And anecdotally, we are seeing an increase in the number of clients reaching out to us. And we're also seeing that when they reach out, in many, in many cases, their situations are extremely dire. Uh, you know, so when you think about it, just helping somebody to escape during a lockdown is a logistical nightmare. So that, that part has become really difficult for those who reach out. Their lives are in danger. Uh, you know, it, even if they're ready to leave, just the, the typical escape routes that we would typically uh, create for them and help them to plan are, are just not options right now. Um, but but also a lot of the forms of abuse that that we have seen that are very, very typical that parents will uh, employ against a child, uh, an adult or minor child when they're trying to force them into a marriage, they would otherwise raise red flags, but now they can go unnoticed. So for example, one of the tactics that parents often use is they tell their, their child, and this could be, again, a minor or it can be an adult who lives with their parents. They'll say, well, until you say yes to this marriage, we're going to lock you in your room. We're taking away your phone. We're taking away your laptop. At any other time, if this child or, or this adult didn't show up to school, didn't show up to work, didn't show up to wherever they were supposed to be, that would raise red flags. But in this case, what's happening is everybody's locked down. So nobody even knows. So we had, we've had people reach out and say this happened. And the only ways they had to find really creative means to be able to contact us. And that's the only reason that we know this happened. But that means that there are others out there who are in this situation who didn't find some way to reach out to us for help, who right now could be trapped. It is a terrifying time right now. And, um, and, and it's just heartbreaking to think about when we're, I'm sitting here safely at home what other people are experiencing at this moment. Yeah, it's very, it's very frightening to think about about um, a lot of people out there in a very difficult situation. As far as COVID, has it impacted the uh, 
the legislative work that you folks are doing? Did, you mentioned the recent victory in Pennsylvania. Uh, did COVID interfere with that at all? No. Okay, so COVID has, you know, destroyed and shut down a lot of things. And one of them is our <laughs> legislative work. For the most part, our advocacy work has come to a standstill because a lot of state legislatures are either not functioning right now or are focused only on COVID-related bills. Uh, but Pennsylvania is a bright spot. The legislative sponsors of the bill there were very clever. So for weeks, the bill was stalled like everything else. And Pennsylvania was saying, we are considering now only COVID-related bills. Well, the legislative sponsors very creatively added an amendment to the bill that made it a COVID-related bill. And suddenly the bill was fast-tracked and that's how it was able to pass out of the Senate today. Well, pass out of the Senate committee last week after just weeks of nothing happening. And then just today passed out of the Senate and is about to pass. And maybe it already actually passed out of the House. I don't know. I've been talking to you. Maybe something good happened that I don't even know about yet. And uh, and is expected to head very soon to the governor who has already promised to sign it. Governor Have you found it hard or easy to engage people in different states on this issue? Is it, are, are you working mostly through individuals, supporters, or through uh, local groups that are, are supportive of your, of your mission? Do you mean during COVID or in general? Uh, in general. Oh, okay. So yeah, this, so this is not something that any one group or one person could do. I mean, this is a huge undertaking to end child marriage in a country of this size where it has to, the legislation has to pass in all 50 states and there's additional legislation needed at the federal level. So no, this is not something that Unchained at Last can do on its own. So we're happy to lead this, what has become a national movement. It kind of, you know, turned out that way. And, uh, and, and we're happy to, to stand at, you know, as the, as the leader of this movement. Um, but we absolutely rely on partners in every state. That's a crucial part of our strategy in every state is to get state, county, municipal, you know, uh, groups, agencies, individuals, survivors, uh, clergy members, you know, anyone who will join and come out and say, this is not just Unchained at last that wants you to end child marriage. These are your constituents. These are the people in your state. And, uh, that, you know, that's that's what we have found is a, a really important aspect of this. If we just show up one day in Minnesota and say, end child marriage, it's, well, who are you? Go back to New Jersey. But if we show up with a bunch of Minnesota-based organizations and, and, um, and Minnesota residents and constituents, then we, uh, then we get people's attention. So we're very lucky that we've been able to build these coalitions in various states. And uh, as you know, we also have a national coalition that's working on legislation at the federal level. And that group has what, 70 uh, members at this point. And it's, uh, that's an ever-growing coalition of groups and individual survivors in the U.S. who believe strongly that we should no longer be uh, marrying off children and uh, subjecting them to rights of abuse. Would, would the national bill be similar to the, the state bills that have, have passed that you know, banned child marriage in specific states? Would it be a very similar approach? No. So at the state level, you know, the age at marriage has kind of been established fairly, you know, um, strongly that that is within the purview of states' rights, that that's not something the federal government can easily do, come in and set a marriage age. So the actual uh, changing the statute saying you know, to marry in Mississippi, you need to be 18, that has to pass in Mississippi. At the federal level, though, there are additional loopholes in federal law that allow, in some cases, even encourage child marriage. And so that's what we're looking to do at the federal level. And in fact, Senator Ron Johnson has introduced a bill that 
I mean, it was, it was unlikely to pass even before COVID and now has become even less likely. Um, but it would eliminate the, there's a serious immigration loophole. Right now, there's no minimum age to petition for a foreign spouse or fiance or to be the beneficiary of a spouse or fiance visa. And so this bill would set 18 as the minimum age. Because right now, what we see, in addition to pregnancy, a large, often the reason that a child in the U.S. is forced to marry is so that uh, some adult overseas can get a U.S. visa and a path to citizenship. And has has Congress been receptive to this concern about about immigration abuses? Um, well, so far the bill has not gone anywhere, but. Um, you know, you know, getting federal legislation passed is as hard as it is at the state level. The federal level is a whole new game that I have not played before, and it, it is just not easy. But um, so right now, I think most legislators don't even know that this bill exists, and uh, it's really not on anybody's radar. It was also the way it was introduced was not ideal. It has become right now only Republicans on the bill. And there's a there's a House version as well with only Republicans. So especially since immigration related, you know, when you have a bill with all Republicans on it, it makes it very difficult to to convince Democrats to sign on to it. So I mean, so far it hasn't been going very well. There's another you know another piece that uh, Senator Johnson has promised that he would add to the bill is you know if possible is eliminating right now there is a there's a federal statutory rape law, but there is an exception for marriage. If you marry a child before you rape her or him, then uh, under federal law, that is legal. And so we want to eliminate the marital exception to statutory rape at the federal level. So that's another piece that, again, a no-brainer. You would think everybody would support it, but uh, it's a matter of raising awareness and getting people on board. Wow. Um, I wanted to ask you about the, the many hundreds of, of women and girls that you've helped through these abusive situations. Do could you maybe talk about one that has, one or two that have stood out for you as as um, um, you know women that um, that maybe others might identify with their struggle or their particular circumstances. Well, I couldn't share any story without first getting permission from a survivor. But uh, but I can talk about some of the patterns that we see. I think that one of the things that we see the most at Unchained at last is, I was saying before, when somebody in the U.S. is forced to marry, the perpetrators are almost always the parents. And so certainly in my own situation, this was the case. And almost every client, every survivor we have ever worked with at Unchained at last, what, what we all have in common is the sense of betrayal. This was my own parents who did this to me. and. You know, so that's that's something that um, that I think a lot of people who are in the situation, either being forced, about to be forced to marry, or already in a forced marriage, can relate to that that feeling of betrayal. These are the people who are supposed to love me. These are the people I would typically go to for help if somebody else was doing this to me. But it's them; they're the ones doing this to me. So where do I go? What do I do? Yes, where do I, who do I turn to? There is a new tool coming out, a documentary film called Knots, a Forced Marriage Story by Kate Ryan Brewer. Uh, the film is already winning awards on the festival circuit. And like, like Unchained at Last, the Child Labor Coalition is really pleased to be a partner in the film's release. And we're hoping to help with the screening in DC coming in the, as soon as things open up um, with regard to the virus. Can you tell us about your participation in the film and, and about the film itself? Sure, yeah. So Knots is a beautiful film. 
It's uh, a feature-length documentary film about forced marriage and child marriage in the United States. And it follows three forced marriage survivors. And I am one of them. And as you said, it, it, it's, it's been on the, the, the film festival circuit. Again, COVID put an end to that. I don't know when we'll have a film festival ever again. Um, but most recently, it was screened at the Manchester Film Festival and won Best Documentary Film. And uh, it's, it, it's a really powerful way to get the message out that this is happening, but also not just that this is happening, but to explain the impact on individual lives. Just people who had seen it, obviously I'm a little biased because I'm in it, but others who have seen it have said, you're just seeing the stories of the stories about what this meant for us, how each of us came to this and, um, and how we, how difficult it was for us to get out and rebuild our lives, you know, really drove it home in a, in a powerful way. There's also one of the main um, misconceptions, I think, about forced marriage in the United States is that it involves somebody holding a gun to your head and you're getting married now, whether you like it or not. Now, that does happen. I have worked with survivors who were married at gunpoint. Think about how traumatic that is. But in most cases, there is no gun to the head. Nobody held a gun to my head. Nobody held a gun to the head of the other two survivors featured in knots. But the film does a great job of showing how you can be forced to marry or forced to do other things without anybody holding a gun to your head. Hmm. Wow. While we're talking about film, there's a television series out now on cable called Unorthodox. And it's gotten a lot of attention. It tells the story of an Orthodox woman whose situation was, uh, I think, somewhat similar to yours. Um, and she ends up um, fleeing from that restrictive marriage. Have you seen the show? And do you have any thoughts about it? I have seen the show. And yes, it is a very similar story to my own. It was based very loosely on Deborah Feldman's uh, memoir of the same title, Unorthodox, which was a number one, I think it was a number one New York Times bestseller. It was definitely a New York Times bestseller when that came out many years ago. Actually, it was around the same time that I found it on Shane at Last because I remember reading Deborah Feldman at the time and, and talking about her book and on Shane at Last. Um, unfortunately, the the series, while you know, aesthetically, it's very accurate. Uh, so in terms of the apartments that the families live in, the wardrobe, the way people look, very, very accurate. But the, the series did not follow Deborah's actual story. And so the storyline itself, to me, was extremely disappointing. It not only ignored some of the really serious abuses against women in my former community, but it also portrayed escape from the community as ridiculously laughably easy. I mean, so the uh, the protagonist, her first day off the boat, so to speak, she meets a group of really supportive friends. I mean, that's ridiculous. Everyone I know, is, this is not just me, everyone I know who has left, it takes years and years to make friends. And then even then to get them to understand your experience and to be supportive, I mean, that is, that's something that takes decades. There's no such a thing as doing that in one day. Um, but somehow with her, within a, you know, within a day, she, she has this great group of friends. And by the way, she's also sleeping with the hottest guy in Berlin, which is fantastic for her. But again, just seems a little, <laughs> seems a little bit unrealistic. Um, and there are a lot of, a lot of little details about her escape that I, uh, I just, it was aggravating for me to watch this. I wanted to throw things at my screen. It was like, are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. You had the memoir. Why didn't you follow that? Why, <laughs> you know? And Deborah Fillon was involved in the production of this, so um, so she, you know, so she, you know, she was a part of this. But um, yeah, I, I wish they had done a better job of 
portraying the, that more accurately. It should bring some some much needed attention to this issue, though, I would think. Yeah, it is a great way to raise awareness. Like, you know, even during COVID, we're still getting do- online donations uh, from people who have never donated to us before. And I suspect that some of them are those who watched Unorthodox and then did a Google search and found Unchained at last. So, yeah, I, it is a great way to raise awareness. And look, even despite my concerns and, and problems with the show, it was still very entertaining and I enjoyed watching it. So and we're all looking for something to do right now. So, yeah, mm-hmm. so there, there is that. Can you talk about your decision to start a nonprofit to to tackle these the problems that you're talking you've been talking about? Yeah, maybe where you were in your life when when that decision came about, and and um, you know if there was any any impetus that made you decide I've really got to do something beyond what I'm already doing. Yeah, I always like to say it. I think it was survivor's guilt. It, it came about because in 2011 I became financially independent enough that I was able to buy a small house for myself and my daughters. And I was at the closing for this house and it was, I was so excited. I mean, I assume I am the first woman in the history of my family ever to buy her own home. And I had overcome so much to be able to get there. And everybody thought that I would crumble and die and end up, uh, you know, alone on a a street corner somewhere. And here I am buying, it's a little tiny house. It's it's a little Cape Cod that we call the Palais de Triomphe for, you know, it's an ambitious name for a tiny Cape Cod. But I was just so excited about it. And and if you've ever been to a closing, you know how boring it is. It was just a bunch of lawyers sitting around and just, you know, every time I try to tell them how exciting this was, they said, and we need your signature here. And I just, it was so anticlimactic. And so I walked out of there and I said, you know, I have to do something. I got out and I got to this point in my life that I'm I am able to buy my own home, but there are so many other people who are still trapped. And so that was when the idea for Unchained at Last was born. And what what career were you pursuing um, before before you started Unchained? Well, so at the time, um, I think I had already loved journalism. I got when I got my degree, that was how I got out was getting my becoming the first person in my family to go to college. I graduated from Rutgers University at 32 and I got my degree in journalism. So at first I was a journalist and then I think, yeah, not definitely by 2011, I had already left journalism and I had become a private investigator. I was working at the time at Kroll, which is at the time it was the world's largest investigations firm. So I went from, um, from being an investigative reporter to being a private investigator. So I was a single mom working full time, commuting from New Jersey into Manhattan every day. And I thought, well, you know, I have a couple of hours free every week. I can devote about two hours a week to Unchained at Last. We don't need a budget. It's going to be an all-volunteer organization. We'll help. In my original business plan, I wrote, we'll help five women the first year, and we'll go to 10 women the second year, and everything is going to be great. By the end of the first year, we had 30 clients, and I realized this is going to take more than two hours a week. Wow. Very impressive. I think it's uh, it's great that you decided to to help others in the in the same situation you found yourself in. Um, so there are a lot of folks listening out there. Hopefully that ha- have heard um, something heard about something they didn't really know that much about and and want to help. Uh, what would you tell those people? I would tell those people please go to unshamedatlast.org. Learn more about forced marriage and child marriage in the United States, and there are specific actions on there that you can take. There's a get involved page where there are different ways that you can get involved, everything from applying for 
either a staff position or a volunteer position with Unchained at last or an internship to just following us on social media, sharing, liking, retweeting, helping to spread the word, joining us at an upcoming chain in once we can leave the house again and chain in again. Just educating yourself about the issue and, and spreading the word. Talk to someone else about it. You're shocked by what you heard today. Mention it to whoever you're stuck in the house with. Mention it next time you're in a, on a Zoom call with a friend. Just say, hey, did you know that force and child marriage are still happening in the United States? Yes, I think awareness is key. Um, it's certainly one of the struggles we, we face with our child labor issues. Most people tend to think that child labor is uh, a problem that disappeared a long time ago and that it's not, it's not existent still. And, um, you know, just getting that awareness level up is a, is a first step, I think, in dealing with a lot of problems. Yeah, exactly. And, and because we're dealing with similar issues, that's another reason we're so grateful to have you as partners, because there, there are a few organizations that understand the issue as well as you do and understand, yeah, this is something we all thought had been solved centuries ago, but we didn't. And we can we need to, we need to still solve this. And it's not going to happen on its own we need to push legislators to do this. Yes. As we try to a close, um, as we get close to the, close to finishing our talk here. Do you have a message, a final message to young women um, who are either trapped in a child marriage or a forced marriage and, and are feeling um, hopeless? I, I do. I, I, I want to let anybody who is in that situation know that you deserve better. You deserve to get help and you can get help. So reach out to Unchained At Last or reach out to a, a different advocacy organization that has an awareness of this issue. We're the only ones in the U.S. that's dedicated to this issue, but you can reach out to a domestic violence agency or other agency that, that might be able to help you if you don't feel comfortable reaching out to us at Unchained at last. Uh, just, just know, again, you deserve help and you can get it. Um, thank you. Thank you for those inspiring words. Frady, I want to thank you so much for visiting with us, for sharing your compelling story, and for telling us about Unchained at Last's work. Uh, uh, we look we look forward both at NCL and the and the Child Labor Coalition. We look forward to continuing to work with you to end exploitive child marriages and forced marriages in the U.S. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate your your partnership and your raising awareness of this issue. Thank you. Well, stay safe during this troubling time. You too. Thanks for listening to We Can Do This, a production of the National Consumers League. We Can Do This is a member of the District Productive. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast app. And hey, tell your friends about us. We love feedback, so give us a rating or review. You can also talk to us through the National Consumers League's Facebook page or on Twitter at NCL underscore tweets. That's NCL underscore tweets. Still can't get enough? Visit nclnet.org, that's n-c-l-n-e-t dot o-r-g, to learn about our rich history in fighting for consumers and workers' rights, our current leadership, our education and advocacy programs, and to discover ways for you to make a difference in the world. Remember, we can do this.